Hey, and welcome to the Clocked In Creative, a podcast for creatives in business made by creatives in business. Brought to you by the University of Georgia here in beautiful Athens, Georgia. I'm your host, Seth Hendershot. The mighty Michelle Davis is here to continue our discussion on IP or intellectual property. We talked last episode rather broadly on what IP is and some different key points about IP. This episode, we're going to narrow the focus a bit and discuss copywriting your assets. Michelle Davis, welcome. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming back. Part two. Really appreciate that. Um, as we discovered, this this topic is so broad and so many facets to it that we could we could do ten episodes on this. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna kind of narrow it down here and uh, talk about copywriting specifically, uh, copywriting your assets. Um, and we got some background on you last time, so maybe we can just jump in and you can explain to our audience in legalese and layman's terms, what is copyright? Sure. So what is copyright? We, we talked about it a little bit last time and how it is different and unique from the other types of intellectual property, but it's basically a protection that's guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution for the protection of original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium of expression. I'm using all these words from the copyright statute for a reason because we're going to talk about each one in turn and how they're defined and what they really mean. Cool. But essentially it's just a way to protect and have exclusive rights to creative works um, like paintings, photography. Uh, We talked a little bit about dance last time. You can actually get a copyright for choreography. I looked into that a little I bit more. I did too. And, and pantomime for what pantomime it's worth. Pantomime and choreography. Yeah. So yeah. you mimes out there. And yes, very specifically they say, but not for, I think they call it social dance moves or something like that. So your TikTok dances, for example. The dab. Yeah. You cannot, that is not original enough uh, or creative enough to get a copyright registration. Because everyone thinks they did it first. Yeah. Or like moves in a athletic event or I forgot how they worked it so the wave you know you're not oh, going to wow. be able to register that or like uh, probably simple kind of dances that you see at a wedding or something okay not, not enough something that a professional dancer would perform in front of an audience so right. that's that's an update for all our dancers out there so you own the copyright as soon as you create it um, as soon as it is fixed and we can talk about what that means but there are a lot of benefits to actually registering the work with the copyright office. Namely, that allows you to sue people if they infringe on your work, and we'll talk a little bit more about infringement today than we got into last time. Um, The other big one is that if you have a copyright registration before somebody infringes on your work, infringe just a word for stealing, or Mm -hmm. uses your work without your permission or a license, uh, then you might qualify for statutory damages. Huh. And so, like back pay? Not back pay, actually. So, statutory damages is is the is different than actual damages. So, if you have if you didn't register in time, or you just prefer to get actual damages, what that means is that you're showing um, the act how much money you lost as a result of this infringement. So. It, you could look at, uh, for example, lost sales, lost licensing revenue because they stole your work. As you can imagine, it's really, really hard to prove, and you have to actually prove it. You have to show, uh, my sales went down by this percent as soon as you stole my work, and I can show that there's causation between you stealing it and my revenue going down, which is very hard to do. 
um, depending on the situation. You could also get actual damages could also be the profits of the infringer. So maybe someone is selling, you know, your painting copies of it without your permission. And so you could ask for an audit of how much money they've made off your work and ask for that money back. Or, you know, it could be, it's something like the license fee that you would have charged them for permission plus their profits. That's kind of the most common calculation. Statutory damages, on the other hand, is just by virtue of how it, it, it's called statutory because it's defined in a statute in the copyright law. It says, if you infringe on a work, you can get between $750 to $30,000 for every work that's infringed just because it was infringed and the court found them guilty. And so the court actually has a lot of leeway on determining what they think is fair. So even though you don't have proof or they are not being forthcoming about their profits, you can say, well, I'm still going to ask for $30,000 for this one song that you stole or this one picture. Huh. Um, and the court will decide, like, in that window, you said 30000 to $750,000? $750. <clears throat> oh, $750. That's the low end. Okay, so to thirty is the cap. Okay. Yeah, and it gotcha. actually can go up to $150,000 if it's a willful infringement. We don't have time to get into all that, but that's something that's hotly debated when you actually, if you make it as far as going to the courtroom, was the infringement willful or not? Did they know that they were infringing and they did it anyway, etc.? So depending on, on the case, on the scenario, sometimes actual damages are going to be higher if they're selling a ton of records or whatever uh, without your permission, or it could be that statutory damages is the way to go because it's too hard to prove. Right. It's just a flat one-time, yeah. bam. So basically, actual damages is kind of looking at how many times, it could be how many copies of something they sold versus statutory damages is linked to how many works they infringed upon. So they stole my one song or they stole my whole catalog. And it's, you know, so um, people who have downloaded movies illegally, for example, on the Internet, and then they get flagged and they say, OK, well, you've you that's where they'll get the money from. Like you will owe us thirty thousand dollars because that's the statutory damages for infringing on this one movie. And if for every movie that you watch, that's another thirty thousand dollars. And so it really adds up and it scares people. And then they then they usually have some sort of a negotiation if, if they're going to actually respond to those kind of... How bad did you want to watch Lethal Weapon 2? Yeah. If it even what? goes that far, yeah. And, then, <laughs> and getting the unsolicited, the weird emails based on IP numbers is another discussion whether they have a valid claim. But We've had that here, actually. Yeah. We've got had cease and desists come in from flagged IPs in the coffee shop, in the venue, with yeah. people on the internet downloading illegal stuff and then the FCC will send us a letter and be like yeah you need to put an end to that well and and it's I mean it's so hard to prove who the actual infringer was in that case because a lot of people are using it and then what are you actually liable that's another another discussion but um but I would just wanted to get into basically there's there's going back to the original point there are benefits to registering early Right. You can get, potentially get more money. Um, so before there's infringement or within three months of publication, that's when you get those um, benefits. And attorney's fees, that's the other big one. Right. So even if, um, let's say, they're just found guilty of 750 bucks or something, you could still recover the attorney's fees, which are going to be expensive Pretty massive, if, yeah. if you get all the way to trial. Right. And a very, very small percentage of copyright cases end up at the trial stage, there may be a lawsuit filed, 
But, um, you know, those things move really slowly. It's not like in movies where people are like, I see you, fast forward, in court. You know, right. It could be you a year or truth. two yeah, <laughs> of gathering information and filing motions with the court and back and forth. So it's a long process. Wow. Um, so before you move on, I understand that copyright covers songwriting, author's works, paintings. Now we know dance. Mimes are cool. Yeah. What about the culinary arts? It's not mm. mentioned in anything that I've researched or looked over, but many high-level chefs that I, I'm either aware of or know personally, you ask them what's in something, they're very whispery about it. Oh, well, it's this and this and then, you know, and then they just yeah. kind of trail off and you're like, wait, what? Now I'm starting to understand, like, that is a real threat to a, to a high-level chef. It can, it's a threat and it's not protected by copyright law specifically in, for two reasons. One, a recipe is not copyright you can't copyright a uh, recipe because it's just a list of ingredients if you had a cookbook and you know you might see some of them have a backstory like this was my grandma's favorite recipe and we she learned about it in Italy and blah 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 sure. and that all that context that literary uh, writing around it uh -huh. is protectable under copyright you could register a copyright for that but the recipe just a recipe is not and even if it were, or even if you had a recipe in a book, for example, and you wanted to register that, that's public domain, so right. people would have access to it. So you wouldn't want to register something you don't want people to know about, if gotcha. that makes sense. If yeah. you have a secret recipe and you file it in a public database, it kind of defeats the purpose. It's on you. Yeah, <laughs> it's on you. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to, and I would assume also that, publishing a cookbook is very different than having a recipe that you want to keep secret. Sure, obviously. sure. That would be the only context where recipe and copyright uh, might come up. So if you're going to protect a recipe, that's that you're looking more at trade secret type pr protections. Okay. Having a contract maybe with your employees that they can't um, use your recipes in another restaurant um, or disclose it. Mm -hmm. So it's just that's outside the umbrella of copyright specifically. Gotcha but it could still be protected maybe in other ways. Okay, cool. That's yeah, that was, the, that was the big burning question. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, and another uh, burning question from last time, you mentioned happy, happy birthday. Oh, yeah, yeah, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Well, I don't know, I added an extra happy, happy, happy birthday. Because <laughs> you don't want to get in song. trouble. <laughs> I don't know, what is the actual title? <laughs> I was like, there's something about that recently. What was it? So there, believe it or not, Warner Chapel, the publisher, had been collecting royalties for that until just recently, until 2015. Wow. They finally had a lawsuit over it, and they, they, the court found that they did not have a legitimate copyright in that work. <laughs> um, and this was, I mean, I, you can Google it and get into the whole backstory because it's very complicated. It was like a couple of sisters wrote a song. Um, I think it was something like, Good Morning to You or something like that for kindergartners to sing, and then it, they changed the lyrics around happy birthday to you became a hit uh, <laughs> like the most like they think the most rev royalties for any song ever wow uh, and, and so the court found that you know the, so they signed to one publisher that got bought out by another one changed hands many times in the end they found that all that warner owned the copyright to was this very specific piano arrangement of the song but not the underlying composition 
and lyrics. And they had been charging, you know, like Disney, I think paid $5,000 to sing happy birthday at one of their parades. They're charging filmmakers, you know, $1,500. There was one um, documentary that got derailed because they asked, there was a clip of uh, people singing happy birthday to Martin Luther King Jr. And they were charged however much, $1,000 or something to pay. So the end result, invalid copyright, and they had to pay it back. They had to pay back all, I think it was something like $14 million <gasps> in royalties. Wow. So that's an update on that one. Wow. That I wish okay. I knew Good for to last know. week. So that's one way <laughs> copyright can play out and that why it gets litigious. And uh, some scholars finally had to come up and dig through the history books and and get to the bottom of it. So, so it now gets those horrible tchotchke restaurants can abandon their horrible versions of birthday songs yeah, and just start singing happy birthday? Let, yeah, I think so. <laughs> if, that was the, if that was what was holding them back, then yeah, they can just do it. Uh, go, go the original. It is in the public domain now, officially. Yeah. So you sort of covered why it's important to copyright like as soon as possible as a creative. And, and, and I think... I think it's a good moment to explain like this podcast being about creatives in business. Any, it doesn't mean you open up a store and sell a thing, a tangible thing. Like any, any creative minded person, as soon as they make an attempt to carve out a living doing what they love doing, whether it's painting or songwriting or dancing or miming or whatever it is, writing, they're in business like you right. are you are officially like you you need to set up your llc or your sole proprietorship or whatever it is get legit and then copyright all of your all of your your creations because that's the only way to protect you against you know a would-be competitor with, with potentially massively deep pockets that could you know bury you in legal fees and and steal all your cool ideas exactly and i mean even if somebody even if you have the registration, enforcing it's still time intensive uh-huh. and um, and and costly. But you at least need to be able to have the keys to the courthouse, as they say, and have that registration in place so you can enforce those rights and knowing what they are, um, and also understanding that just because you put your work into the world, you don't give up any of those rights. So uh, a lot of people conflate the rights that are associated with the work and the actual physical object. Mm. So if I buy, you know, a piece of art from the walls of a gallery, for example, I take home that painting, but I don't own the rights to the the actual art. Right. The artist still has the exclusive right to that copyright. So just because I have this thing in my possession, I can't take pictures of it and sell prints of it, for example. Right. Um, or say, well, this is my painting. Now I own it. I paid for it, but you didn't pay for the copyright. You can sell the physical thing. Yeah. But not versions of it. And people, you know, and the same goes for things that are online, uh, songs you hear on the radio. Just because you, it's out there for consumption, doesn't mean you own the copyright to it. Hmm. Um, Or if you buy an album, yes, you own that physical copy and you can enjoy it, but that doesn't give you rights to duplicate it, distribute it, perform it in public. that bundle of rights that a copyright owner owns so maybe this is a good point to to go into what those rights are oh yeah and and it's always referred to as the bundle of rights so as a copyright owner you have the exclusive right to reproduce the work to distribute it to publicly display it to publicly perform it and publicly being the operative word so you know you can play a song for friends you can play a movie at home you know that's not a 
public performance. Right. Um, but if you're charging a covered, you know. Yeah, board. it gets a little bit sticky there. Um, even if it's free, but you have a wide audience for mm-hmm. something, and it might be considered a public event. Like there's some weddings that are big enough where they didn't get a performance rights license and they could get in trouble because right. um, if the venue didn't have one. Anyway, <laughs> we can go into all the, the, the very fact-specific considerations for every scenario. But, um, and then you also have uh, for digital streams, uh, of sound recording, exclusive right to p- performance, and then the exclusive right to create derivative works, so works that are based on the original work. Okay. So like a translation or something of a book, for example. Um, so those are the exclusive rights that you get. Um, in order to register your copyright, it has to be original and it has to be fixed. So we can talk about those two keywords that come up in copyright definitions. So originality, basically the work has to be independently created by the author as opposed to copied from other works. Right. And it has to have at least some minimal degree of creativity. And it's, the bar is very, very low. And what the courts have said over and over again is they don't want to be critics. Right. They don't want to have to decide, mm, is this song original enough? It kind of sounds mm. like it's been played out, you know, or something. It, it doesn't have to be good <laughs> it doesn't have to be that's unfortunate yeah for, for, for copyright to make money maybe can't just be a list of for so the this definition a modicum of creativity which the courts is their, their verbiage that comes from this feist case which is the name of the publisher and they were trying to they, they created a phone book basically um they <laughs> Good job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wanted to create a bigger phone book, uh, like I think for a wider region, and so they asked a company that had a phone book for a smaller region if they could you know, get their information, and they said, no, we're not going to license that to you. They said, well, we're going to just pull it anyway, and they got mad, the original publisher, and the court said, well, you can't, you can't own the rights to just names alphabetically <laughs> listed in phone numbers. There's no originality. In the Feist case, I actually have a quote from them. So the requisite level of creativity is extremely low. Even a slight amount will suffice. The vast majority of works make the grade quite easily as they possess some creative spark, no matter how crude, humble, or obvious. Huh. So, which is kind of a weird diss, but to most artists, even if it's crude, humble. Uh, obvious. Or obvious. <laughs> you, can get it, you can get a copyright. No judgment-free zone. Yeah. Um, and then it also has to be fixed. So that just means... <clears throat> capable of being perceived, reproduced, communicated for more than a transitory duration. So if you're uh, improvising a song, for example, and someone overhears you, um, and then they take that, uh, you, don't, you don't have a copyright claim because unless you had written it down, recorded your performance of it right. um, first. So if you just overhear somebody saying something and you like it and you put it in a song or a, or a poem, they don't have a good claim right. against you um, if it's just out there. That's on you for being an improviser. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you might tough. have some claims. Yeah, it's tough, it's tough for improvising. Uh, but if it's recorded, you might have some claims later. You, you've kind of gone over it already in that it's it's very complex and lengthy. But worth it, I would assume, how does somebody claim infringement on a copyright? Or how does somebody, like, you know stand up for themselves especially you know when you're talking about creatives and business there's generally not a lot of bankroll there so it's it's a lot harder to feel like you have a voice 
but because of the copyright, I guess you have more than you might be aware of yeah. to stand on, more of a leg to stand on? So there's two things, two main things you have to prove when you're, when you are um, charging someone with infringement. You have to show that one, that you own a valid copyright and that two, um, there was actual copying and copying has to have access and a substantial similarity. So similarity makes sense, right? You have to, uh, that's going to be hard to prove in the court, but they have to show that their work is similar to yours. Um, but then access is the, is one that people often overlook. So you have to actually show that they had heard of your work specifically oh. in some way. So just, so if one artist on the other side of the country happens to write or paint a picture or something that looks a whole lot like yours, you can't just say that's copyright infringement. Right. They have to show that they actually saw your work and based their work on yours. Now, where it gets really tricky is it doesn't have to be a conscious copying. So there's this famous case uh, with George Harrison. Uh-huh, the Hare Krishna song. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, that's the big one. They, they showed um, unconscious, or, or not unconscious, <laughs> subconscious uh, copying, right? Where he had, they showed, they showed access. They knew that he had heard the song before. At some point, he was exposed to it, and whether he realized it or not, it was in his brain, and it influenced his own work, which is wild to think about, because how much music or art are you exposed to, you know? And, right. Um, no, I, that's a real struggle for songwriters, too, because I know plenty of them that are like, man, I wrote this great tune, and then it, I'll see them second guess of, wait a minute, as they're playing through it, like, this sounds like something else, and you have to, it's very dicey, you have to be very careful um, about stuff like that. But a huge artist like George Harrison, I mean... I don't know. I guess it seems more likely that he would get called out on something like that because that song was, I mean, that topped the charts for a minute, yeah. I, would, I would assume, or at least it was up there. It was certainly listened to and exposed to a lot of people. And so that's, and that's the other thing about infringement, right? So it's deciding not only if there was infringement, but is somebody actually going to sue you for it? And just because you, let's say you wrote a song based on something else you heard or um, at one point, um, if you're a local artist that's just starting out and the original artist never hears it, or even if they hear it but they are flattered by it, yeah. they don't have to sue you, you right. know? Um, or they, and, and they may, may realize they can't get a lot of money off you, all, but if you see George Harrison doing a song, you're gonna go after it and you're a litigious, you know that there might be some payout, it might be worth the time and money to well, sue. Well, what was the other song? Was it the Chanel's? He's it, it was, so fine. He's so fine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and his song is, uh, I really want to meet you. That's the one. Ma, ma. Dang. That was close, it's George. It's close, but not, I, I don't it's know. It's not that, I mean, it's 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 likened to the Tom Petty, Sam Smith thing mm -hmm. as well, or I, to me, the one that sticks out, and I don't know what's come of it, you might know, but that Rihanna song, Bitch Better Have My Money, when you hear the original version of the the young lady in Texas, I think Houston, Texas, she was an artist in Houston, did, and then a couple years later, Rihanna, this huge pop star, comes out with 
I mean, virtually the same song. And I don't think anything came of it because that little girl didn't have, it, well, she didn't have copyright. And it could have just been settled because a lot of those, people, That's true. they'll come up after and say, hey, you kind of stole my song. And they'll say, whoops, sorry, here's some money. And then I'm it Rihanna, goes away. here's 100000 <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's what happens often. And, um, the one that's caused a lot of controversy in the industry was just a few years ago, that Robin Thicke song, Blurred Lines. Oh, yeah. And it was sued by Marvin Gaye. And that one was... Um, that one caused a lot of stress because they, they there wasn't even a similar melody between the two, mm-hmm. or even there were some of the same chords, but it was more about the feeling. The groove was the, the same. Groove, yeah. yeah, and it was um, the fact that they found them guilty kind of blew some people's minds. So you can't have. They can did. You, they did. Yeah, guilty of I infringement. Did not yeah, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Jeez. Um, and there's a lot of factors at play here when you get to a trial with a jury because one the jury is not a bunch of necessarily musicians or copyright experts right. just laymen you know getting whatever limited evidence is presented and because the, the the infringement had to do with the composition and not the sound recording the jury didn't even get to hear the whole songs played in the courtroom right they heard excerpts and i think they were even renditions of the excerpts it was mostly musicologists talking jargon about what they saw as similar and in that case like i think robin thick had one music expert on his side and marvin gay had two and so people were persuaded by that i heard robin thick was like not very likable by some accounts and you know that's <laughs> he did catch a little fire for i mean it's that a, was like that was ahead of the me too movement but it was a pretty uh, you know yeah turned some people off that i mean just his attitude i think in court from what i've heard from people some accounts from the trial and i mean it's a jury and they're just people and they're influenced by a whole wide range of things beyond the scope of copyright law um but then it was appealed and they still uh uh, affirm that verdict Dang. so we'll see what that means for future cases that cite to that it might get overturned it might things might change yeah. uh, courts always go back and forth um, and we'll it might be worth even discussing really quickly like a, a 30 second law school summary of like where do these laws come from and how are they interpreted please um, so for people who are not used to hearing about legal discussions or referring to statutes and cases and why that's important. So step one is there's the law mm-hmm. that is the legislators come up with. So there's the Copyright Act. It's a federal law, and it's updated from time to time over the years. This is the Title 17 of title the U.S. Title 17 Code. is the copyright law. Yeah, my favorite title. <laughs> it's a Mine good one. too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> everyone ha- should have a copy. It's free online. But so, for example, the copyright law defines, you know, what is copyright? What is what is fair use? And we'll get into that. There's it's defined in the statute. But sometimes a case will happen. They come to court and it, somebody says, well, I think this falls into fair use. When I read the law, I interpret it this way. And someone says, well, when I read the law, I interpret it this way. And so you end up with court case. And often that's then appealed and then you have a higher the higher up it goes the more precedent it has the lower courts have a decision someone doesn't agree with it they appeal goes to a higher court and those courts are divided by geographical regions circuits so um now let's fast forward there's a new conflict and we're trying to say okay let's say um i'm trying to figure out seth if you have a good copyright claim against this other artist 
So first I'm going to look at what the law says, and then I'm going to look at precedent and go to the cases that are relevant. We're going to look specifically at cases in our district that have been in this geographical area or wherever you're getting sued because those have precedent, or if there's Supreme Court cases, and those are even stronger. And so that's why it's important to, to know how these cases play out, because once a judge has an opinion um, on how they interpret the law, then that gets cited down the line. And the answer to almost every question related to copyright, like, is this infringement, is this fair use, is always, it depends. It's, it's very fact dependent. Um, and what's going to happen is you'll have one side that says, our, like, our case is like these cases, so it is infringement. And the other side will say, I think the facts are more like these cases, where the, the court said it was not infringement. Huh. And then you have a battle of uh, Who does the better persuasion. comparing. Yeah. yeah. So that's... That's, in a quick nutshell, basically how all legal arguments are formed. So right. you're just showing what you think are the best arguments, um, the precedent that best supports your arguments, and then it's going to be ultimately up to you know jury or court to decide. How often are new precedents set? Um, Probably rarely, huh? I, it depends <clears throat> on what level. I mean... Things, I feel like copyright's evolving pretty quickly, yeah. and every t uh, time I look, there's some there's been a change, especially with new technology. So, I mean, l new law develops very slowly, right. and so technology is always leapfrogging legislation. So then the courts are kind of scrambling to interpret the law and keep mm. up. And you know, we just actually recently had the um, the Music Modernization Act was passed in, I think it was 2018, 19, um, which is the first in decades. And it's just gone into effect this year. So there have been changes very slowly, you know, like sound recordings, just as one example, were not protected under copyright law until 1976. Uh -huh. And um, they, you know, and they'd been around for decades. You know, there was a copyright act, I think in like 1909, and there was already some kinds of recordings that existed then that technology and it took them 70 years to actually get it down <laughs> in the copyright act and so i remember reading wow. at the time the, the copyright office said you know our, our brand new copyright law is already outdated because it just took so long to pass right so we're always playing catch up and then the there's that level. line the delineation line of i think it was 78 where it passed right um well so and then yeah, everything before that this, has a different set of standards than everything after. Yeah, so and there's actually sound record recordings are actually only protected after 1972 specifically, uh, and for reasons that are unknown really, even by the Copyright Office, they did not include pre-72s with that, um, and so that's something that was actually addressed in the Music Modernization Act. That's now been that that loophole has been closed a little okay. bit. Um, so yeah, there's this huge issue where pre-songs uh, recorded before 1972 didn't have federal copyright protection, and so it was left to this sort of patchwork of state laws on how they were governed. Um, we had e people like Sirius XM Digital Radio, interactive ra radio streams that are supposed to pay um, for the rights for sound recording performance, and they weren't paying all the oldies like channels, mm -hmm. which were wildly popular, they're not paying those artists because there was no, well, they set claim no precedent for paying the pre-72s. There's no right. So they were sued by the guys <laughs> in the turtles. Good. They ended up settling for a, a good amount of money in, in, in at least some of the 
cases, and now we finally have this new law that came after that to okay. sort of fix it um, and bring 72s in. Um, so I think the first, now that there's law, they also set when those old songs are actually going to enter into the public domain. So I think, uh, let me see, I have it somewhere. I think it's like pre-32 or something songs are going to be in the public domain actually at the end of this year. So okay. for the first time, we'll have some sound recordings um, in the public domain. and uh, uh, that's interesting. The songs from like 50s and 60s are protected until I think 19 or 2067, something 2067, like that. Uh-huh. Wow. So, uh, so I know that gets really confusing, convoluted, but we probably don't have a lot of people listening that are legacy artists who recorded. <laughs> Most likely no, but maybe but, related to someone. Or if you want to sample one of those old records yeah. or, uh, do you know, cover, cover them or, uh, then it's, it's interesting. You need to know how to navigate, you know, the, the laws that govern them. For sure. Or use them in a commercial or yeah. for your business or whatever. Exactly. Like, or use them at the front of a podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very dicey. Um, so do comedians, very quickly, comedians fall in the same sort of realm that chefs, recipe writers would fall into? Because I, I haven't heard much about that either. That's sort of, to me, that's even closer to dance, sound recording, uh, songwriting literature because they do write jokes yeah. but but it seems like they're almost a self-governing subculture where they'll just call each other out if they steal that's, jokes from one another yeah that's true i mean there's that sort of social pressure to not copyright and getting um and getting called out in terms of what you can copyright it really depends i mean an, in, a short joke might not rise to the level of being original or cre- creative enough um, but you know, copy uh, comedy albums. Sure. Definitely, you can yeah, register. Like Eddie Murphy Raws definitely. Yeah. Copy. And actually, in the last few years, there's been some brand new um, licensing companies for the first time that are out there to make it easier for uh, people to license the rights to play co- recordings from comedy albums. Oh wow. Um, because they're do mechanical royalties just like songwriters. Sure. So they they do have copyright protections um, at some level. And they just in the last maybe five years, I've started to see some companies um, that make that a little bit easier. So you know who to go to Good. and who to pay. And, but that's mostly for more established artists and sure. that have full albums out or, or a Netflix specials. Special. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. If you just have a joke um, that you've just told live, uh, unless it's been recorded or you write it down, it hasn't been fixed. So it's getting into that territory. Yeah. Or if you had a really good, you know, impro- in, um, interaction with an audience member or something that was really funny, um, if it wasn't recorded, I don't know. Kind of out, out to pasture. Yeah. yeah. He, somebody could potentially steal that. Right. Some unscrupulous comedian. Yeah. Doesn't care. So the takeaway is to protect your creative work whether it's a song or a piece of literature, a dance. Book, poem, yeah. Book, mime routine. poem. Yeah. You need a copyright. The trademark and the patent are two separate things. You cannot, you, you cannot or should not try and get a copyright for your brand name or your logo or anything. That, that's all trademark yeah, stuff. Short phrases aren't going to fly. Um, and if it's related to identifying your business, that's going to be trademark. Um, 
Yeah. Wow. All right. So, it's still a lot to think about. And I, I mean, at least it helps. Hopefully it helps people understand what the, the, the purpose of a copyright and why it's important from your extremely thorough explanation and, and uh, very palatable, might I add. And there's not a whole lot of legalese in there. I appreciate that because you would have lost me. OK, good. <laughs> well, um, do we have time to there's a couple other we absolutely do. Anything you want to share, Wait. I'm down for. Okay, I think cool. uh, I think listeners would appreciate that All as right. well. So I think there's two other big areas that uh, we might want to discuss. So one is, uh, really quickly, we talked about the, the author of a work owning the copyright. But it's important to know that that is something you can give up if you want to. And you can, you can assign your copyright to someone else like an artist might assign their copyright to the sound recording to a record label, for example. Ah. Um, and that is, has to be in writing under federal law. Um, and you know, the terms of that assignment will, are up to you and the other party in a contract. You can alternatively license your work, which is just to give permission for a specific purpose. So that's the difference between assignment and license. Um, the other big question is what a well, okay, it's easy to think about if I did something myself, what if I'm collaborating with someone else? Um, so that's when you get into something called joint authorship. Uh -huh. um, and so what the, what the Copyright Office is kind of looking for there and what courts would look like if someone challenged your rights to a song is that the two authors have to have the intention that their contributions be merged into inseparable or interdependent parts you can't just take somebody else's work, put it in, in, in yours, and say, oh, we work together on this. We both own it. So if they didn't intend for it to be uh, a collaboration, right. you both have to have some intent. Um, so it's also like you could write a song. To, it's a verse, difference between writing a song together and then your joint authors versus I write a poem, and then someone else comes along and uh, wants to put music to it. Mm -hmm. In the first scenario, whether I wrote the words or I wrote the music, we each own the whole thing. We each have equal rights to the whole thing, the whole song. Um, we could each license the whole song, even if we just contributed you know, the music or the lyrics. Can you determine the percentage of which you own? Like, I own 90% because I did the lyrics. Yeah, you, you, can, know, you can establish the royalties that are going to be divided in ownership percentages. Gotcha. Um, but you each have uh, the right to license the whole work. Okay. Um, versus if I wrote a poem and someone else put music to it, they don't own the right, they can't license out those lyrics because I exclusively own that one part of the song and they exclusively own that other part because they were two separate works Okay. and then put together. So that's one way that um, copyright can be, ownership can be looked at. The other thing to consider is works for hire. That comes up, for example, and you've created a work, but under a contract or because you're an employee of a company, it's owned by a third party. So if I am hired as an illustrator by Disney and I, uh, as part of my work, create cartoons for them for a film, I don't own the copyright to the work that I've created. Wow. Disney does. You know, that's... Um, it, it has, and, and what work for hire is, is defined in the statute. So okay. it's very specifically either employer um, work that they performed in the scope of their employment, or it's something that's been commissioned, but it has to be one of these specific types of work. 
a contribution to a collective work, part of a motion picture, uh, translation, you can look up the, uh, the, the list, it's really specific. That's copyright ownership. And then the last thing, because I know it's something that is hotly debated and people, all, I think, need a lot of clarification on is this concept of fair use. Mm. Um, so we talked about infringement. Fair use is a defense that is raised if you are accused of infringement, basically. And it's it allows you to escape punishment, basically. But it's important to think of it as a defense. It doesn't prevent someone from seeing you. It's something that you can raise. And so um, the, it, the fair use is defined in the copyright law, and there's four factors that are weighed, and we can get into this. So the first factor that they look at is the purpose of the use, um, which is the most influential factor. So I'll give an example. Um, I, I posted, let's say there was a famous case where a lady posted a video of her kid dancing and there's a print song in the background. Okay. And they sued and they say, hey, that's our song and you can't post a video of it. Well, what was the purpose of my use? Was it commercial or non-commercial, for example? And it was non-commercial. I'm just sharing a cute video of my family. I'm not making money off of it. Um, it's you know, transformative in some way. It does. It's not like I just posted the song for people to listen to. It's in the part. It's just happens to be in the background. Right. The real. The focus is this kid dancing. That might persuade a court that this was just a fair use. Right. That's protected. A protected use of the song. Um, the other thing they're going to look at is the nature of the copyrighted work. So if it's something that's purely creative, um, like a musical song then fair use is not as strong. If it was something that is like a, a news article or something that's a, something that has some facts and information that are useful to be shared, then there's stronger protections for fair use. Okay. Um, the amount of the work and, and the, so, uh, the amount and substance of the work that was used, so that I play the whole print song in my video? Is right. it just 10 seconds? Is it a hook that's immediately recognizable? Or is it just like the outro of the song? Um, so they kind of look at quantitative analysis and qualitative, how much. Um, so it's not about, and there's no, there's no finite amount that is acceptable or not acceptable for fair use. It's not like if you only use 30 seconds, it's okay. Or if you only use one sentence, it's, it's highly fact dependent and okay. up to the court to decide. Um, and then finally, the fourth factor is the effect of the use on the market or the value for the original work. So is my use um, costing you know the prince estate money because right. people are going to my video right. instead of buying his record? I see. So that's a very long way of saying that fair use is not something you can just declare on your YouTube video. Like you I see, declare fair use. Yeah, you say it all the time. They're like, this is this qualifies as fair copyrights. use under the statute. Yeah. And it said, and it might, but the actual analysis of what is fair use is complex, and you have these four factors that you have to weigh. Um, and there's uh, the the landmark case in this is called Acuff Rose, and it's. Um, uh, uh, two Live Crews parody of Pretty Woman. Oh, okay. I don't know if you ever heard that one, but it's it's like this sort of um, crude, crass, funny take on yeah. this song, and yet it's become like this crux of copyright law analysis <laughs> because it's so important <laughs> to fair use. 
Uh, and so then you get into like parody versus satire and parody is protected and satire isn't and um i don't know we could we could talk I didn't about just realize that, for that an our hour. new parody was protected and realized satire was not yeah so the difference is your work in order to um well parody is protected because it has to be it has to comment on the song that you are borrowing from sure so the court and i don't know if i agree thought that their um, version of pretty woman somehow brought kind of played with the innocence uh, captured in the original song and commented on it in some way i don't remember how they worded it versus satire is like um if i just took uh the song pretty woman and changed the lyrics to be about uh coffee or something just to be funny, right. kind of a more of a Weird Al style of like, here's this melody, but I'm going to make it about something totally different. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I'm not commenting on the original work, that's not a protected huh. type of infringement. I didn't think about old Weird Al. I wonder how many hoops he had to jump through. Well, Weird, Weird Al famously always asks for permission. Yeah. Gets the license. And that's why it depends on the song, I think, whether it's more parody or satire. I think it's almost like a song by song basis. Like, is he commenting on the original or making fun of that and holding right. it up in some different light? Or is he just taking a melody and uh, using it to write about something that happens to rhyme and is punny? Um <laughs> It's, it's case by case, but he always gets permission. I guess that's, that's probably why. Respect, Weird Al. Respect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the fair use really comes down to, did you make money off this or not? Whether whether you're fighting over it. Like that woman and her kid dancing to the Prince song. Like She didn't become viral and a YouTube star. I mean, now probably is. But uh, at that moment when she was getting, you know... Prince it, legal team knocking on her door. It was just this cute video with this song in it. Yeah, I don't know how popular it was, but I mean, so but it's positive. So you could still be guilty of infringement and fair use could fail even if you made zero money yeah. from your work. But that's one thing that they consider. Okay. Yeah. Um, in, in addition to how much you used, uh, the nature of the work, right, the effect right. on their market. So it's, it's just one factor. So a lot of people also think, well, I'm not making any money off this, so it's okay. Right. Um, they can still sue you, and then you still have to prove that it's fair use, and you're going to have to do a lot more than just say, I didn't make money. I didn't make this. money. I was yeah. just kicking puppies to a Prince song. Come on. <laughs> like, they would definitely sue you for that. <laughs> they could sue you for that for sure. Yeah. And then it's up to the court. <laughs> All right. Cool. Good to know. Oh, man. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. But worth yeah. knowing and certainly worth being educated on and aware of in in any kind of creative venture, especially when you're putting your stuff out there for public consumption uh, because you just never know. You never know what, you know, the next song you're going to write, if it's going to be a hit or, um, you know, the next book you write, if it's going to be a bestseller. Like, you, you need to protect yourself and you need to protect your art. Um, and your creative work for sure so where could someone go to register the copyright and how much does it cost oh great questions practical questions so um copyright.gov is the <laughs> copyrights office website uh the current rate is i believe i think it is 65 dollars i want to say for one registration or if you are the sole author of it 
I don't have it in front of me. I'm almost sure it's $65 for uh, the registration of a work or $45 if it's one work and you are the sole author. So, okay. Um, that's the most simple version. And that's per registration. So if you have a bunch of different paintings, you probably, unless it's like a collection, you're going to have to register each separately and pay for each individually. But the copyright website has a lot of really great information, and they also put out these things they call circulars, um, which are little info sheets, and they have okay. one for everything. So you could even Google copyright circular photograph registration or something if you have a photograph, and it will go into how to register your photograph, um, you know, how to submit a copy of the photograph for the database, uh, how much it's going to cost, if you. Know, how you register a collection of works at once when it qualifies for that and mm. all the details are there so there's a they have a lot of really good information nice. to help guide you excellent copyright.gov check it out all right michelle davis i think we covered a lot of ground here 50 minutes worth of ground yeah. well done <laughs> and still so and much you came more. prepared um and there yeah yeah there's no end in sight we could we yeah again do eight more episodes but we won't we'll have to move on any closing thoughts? Oh, man. Get your copyright registered. I guess that's that's the bottom line. And uh, maybe pull up that Acuff Rose case because it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a fun introduction to copyright. That was one of my favorite days in law school to hear, <laughs> to hear that playing after a long, serious day of two live crew, two live crew. with Roy Orbison song, uh, songwriting. And because it was within an educational setting, he had the right to perform that song because we provided commentary on it. So oh, it was a fair nice. use of the fair use case song. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much again. And um, I'm sure we'll have questions and there may be another topic we've call you to see if you'll come back again okay happy to <laughs> but we won't bother you next week i promise <laughs> thanks everybody for tuning in to the clocked in creative brought to you by the university of georgia here in beautiful athens georgia this episode was recorded at hendershot's event space off prince avenue in athens georgia go to hendershotsathens.com to find out what we're up to for more information on the podcast follow us on instagram and facebook at the clocked in creative or go to our website theclockedincreative.com for more episodes find us wherever you get your podcasts all right y'all this is seth hendershot signing off remember to stay creative stay humble keep learning and never give up bye y'all